Hello! A warm winter welcome to the Memorabilia Podcast. This is episode 35 and have we got a bumper show for you today. If this is your first listen, we choose an album from our collection, talk about the songwriting, the genesis of the record, the artist, what else was happening culturally in the UK at the time of release, and the podcast is named after Soft Cell's debut single, Memorabilia. Um, today's episode is the second of back-to-back Mark Harmon records that we are featuring, and specifically today it's 2007's Glamorous and Glorious Stardom Road. If you haven't listened to the previous episode yet, we covered Mark's 2003 Russian love letter, Heart on Snow, um, which scored an impressive 16.5 out of 20, and that made it equal 10th in our memorabilia charts. I'm Rick, and my co-host co-host is Kate. Hello. Uh, We've got two gigs to review as well today, a message from Katarina Kovac to share, a belt in top threes, which we are doing our favourite duets. And of course, we'll be scoring this album. So, let's get on with the show. Thanks for listening as ever. We really do appreciate you tuning in. Uh, we're going to start today's episode just by talking about Katarina Kovac. On the end of the last episode, which was, as I've already mentioned, Heart on Snow... Um, we managed to play a clip of Katarina's cover of Mark Arman's Only the Moment, and we shared a link to it on the last episode. We'll put it again in the show notes for this one. Uh, it's a really nice video that someone's made on YouTube with a version. And um, I'd actually written to Katarina just to ask her how she kind of got into Mark Armand. And she replied after the show, after the uh, Heart and Snow episode. It's okay if you want to just pretend to be Katerina and read out what she said I can do so she says um, her first contact with these souls was in 1988 Um, until then she was a teenager who'd listened to quite different music to her peers she adored baroque music which she still can't live without Um, but when she heard something's gotten hold of my heart on the radio uh, she frantically went to press record on the tape recorder (laughs) so I'm sure some of us will remember having to do that. Um, It was a long time ago. Um, Later, one of her acquaintances gave her the album, The Stars We Are, as a gift, um, because he could see um, how much she loved that song. So when she got the album, she played it. She loved the title track, um, but only the moment um, just kind of took her breath away, made her speechless. She says mostly because of the beautiful harmony that the song has and the lyrics, um, the incredibly good lyrics to one who is so afraid of death as me. That's a direct quote from her message. So um, in 2010, Annie Hogan messaged her and because she co-wrote Only the Moment um, and she sent her a message just saying that she loved it. So just kind of shows it's really interesting how a different interpretation can bring something new, I guess, to a song, even for the people that like originally created it. I guess that's as as an artist, if you've got someone covering your song, it gives you a even if you're like really well known, it gives you a bit of kudos, doesn't it? It must be a great feeling to know that someone's someone else who's kind of made it or I I don't think Katrina's kind of made it in this instance, but there are instances where I've heard artists say, Oh, can't believe they've covered it and you know, really 
really appreciate that and like this version better than my own and all that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, that must have been nice for Katrina and nice for Mark and Annie to, to hear that version as well. Anyway, Stardom Road, we'll get straight into the, the album. It was released in 2007, back in the summer, June the 4th to be precise, on uh, Sanctuary Records. A little bit about Sanctuary Records. Um, they were formed in 1979 by Rod Smallwood and Andy Taylor. And until June 2007, it was the largest independent record label in the UK, largest music, music management company in the world, and the largest independent owner of intellectual property rights with over 160,000 songs. So I thought it was quite an interesting story that Rod and Andy formed this label after discovering Iron Maiden <laughs> in a London pub of all bands. Uh, and they named this, the, the record company Sanctuary after, after their song, Sanctuary. And they released it as a single in 1980. And they enjoyed a very colourful history, it's fair to say. Um, released music for a, a, such a diverse range of artists, including the likes of Kenny Rogers, Lordy, remember them? Mm-hmm. The 2002 Eurovision winners. I can't believe that's 2002, 21 years ago. That's just crazy. Elton John, Pet Shop Boys, Blondie, Morrissey, Robert Plant, blah, blah, blah. Uh, on the 15th of June, 2007. I've never, huh? I've never heard of them. Who? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Great band. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there is a band called Blah, Blah, Blah. <laughs> or is it a song? It's one or the other, I'm sure. Anyway, on the 15th of June 2007, so just 11 days after the release of Stardom Road, Universal Music Group announced that it had reached an agreement to buy Sanctuary Records for $44.5 million, which it completed in October 2007. Um, it lost the name at that point. I think it was at that point, And it's now part of, of BMG, so part of a wider collective. Um, yeah, it was, it was Mark's 13th studio solo album. 13 tracks on it, 12 of which are covers, which we'll go into in a bit more detail shortly. It's 54 minutes long, Kate. Yes, Kate is frowning. She doesn't like <laughs> albums that are over 45 minutes long, as you'll know if you've listened to, be to fair, us there's before. There's a couple of songs I'd probably just not take on this one, <laughs> Interesting. Well, well, we'll see which ones they, want, uh, they are. In terms of how it was received when it was released, this album actually follows on from Heart and Snow. So he released Heart and Snow in 2003, which again was mainly a covers record, but that was the a lot of Russian folk songs on there. So a very different record to this one. This one definitely got a lot more coverage in terms of reviews, interviews, press, that kind of stuff. Uh, the ratings were pretty decent. Uh, All Music rated it 4.5 out of 5. Record Collector, 3 out of 5. The Guardian gave it 3 out of 5. Uh, the guy that reviewed it for All Music was Tom Jurek. And he described Stardom Road as Armand's first finest sorry, studio moment as a solo artist and described his voice as having never been less histrionic yet more excessive. Seems a bit of an oxymoron to me, but there you go. Um, Record Collector said that it was the campest album ever released, but called it entertaining. And the Manchester Evening News, I found a a review from them. Um, And they wrote that it's a very moving and beautifully crafted album. Far from being cover after cover, karaoke style, there is a journey feel to the proceedings. 
New track, Redeem Me, sounds like a classical already. Mark has never sounded as chipper as he does here. Kitsch, camp, melodramatic, yet full of heartfelt emotion. This is a great comeback. And at this point, we should probably mention that it was Mark's first album following his motorcycle accident in 2004, which almost killed him. I think he was in a, a coma for 10 days. And I guess that's why they were calling it a comeback. Because it was pretty much a, a comeback from, from the dead, literally. Um, Remember so, he performed on the Hootenanny. Must have been 2005, I want to say. So what? You don't remember, you don't remember seeing it. About a year, I, did he perform? I remember him being on there. We were having a party at our house, yeah, he yeah, performed. Did he? Was he a bit, because he said, I mean, what, obviously I've read up a lot about this and he was saying that the accident, you know, it, it punctured his eardrums and although they healed, it left him with balance problems and obviously he had to learn to sing again and loads of other stuff so it was the first time that i'd seen any performance by him since the accident and i mean obviously he wasn't like fully fully recovered yeah um but yeah it was just it was a lovely way to start the new year seeing him do a little comeback on that and you know being able to do it kind of thing after what happened so yeah i I think probably was one of the reasons why he got a little bit more coverage on this one that you know I guess it's that thing, isn't it? There's always that sudden interest when someone dies <laughs> in their music. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just a, when someone dies, their stuff is awash with radio and yeah, tributes. And well, I don't hate it, but I always kind of think, why really don't why don't they do it before the dead? Like, exactly. you know what I mean? But if you were that bothered, yeah. <laughs> But I guess this is the closest thing to that. He nearly died, and I think people were kind of, wow, he's still around. Well, I around think people and... were, like, reaching for him yeah. in the fact that, obviously, it was quite a hard recovery and stuff. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, he, he did go through a, a really tough time with it. I mean, I should imagine mentally it was a bit of a, a journey because he talks about the fact that the doctors didn't even expect him to make a recovery and the fact that, you know, some of them had written him off and didn't think he'd, he'd survive. So I guess when you've been in that position, you look at life in a different a different way. And he, he talks about the fact that in some ways it gave him some freedom, you know, and the reason why this album is mainly covers is he's born out of necessity. He wasn't able to write songs, but he came out the other side of it. He got his voice back. He felt he was singing better than ever. He, as I mentioned, he had lessons. He got his confidence back. And the album really is a celebration of that recovery. All the songs, interestingly, are from either the 50s, 60s or 70s, mainly the 60s, really. But these are the decades that, that shaped him and his life. How did he select the songs? Someone asked us on, on Facebook. Well, I think it was, they went for a theme. The theme being that it was kind of a, it could have been like a musical of Mark's life, really, this album. You know, songs that could have been his songs that he could relate to, could have been written by him, songs that he liked, but not just ones that he liked. He had a, a producer called Tris Penner, um, who was quite instrumental in kind of curating the, the songs and saying, maybe not that, have you thought about this one? Um, he did actually consider a couple of 90s songs by both Pulp and Swade, 
Um, Live Bad Show was the pulp one that he was kind of considering that he really loved the song and, and the title appealed to him. And uh, the Swerd one was still live from Dogman Star, but he decided that it was a bit too close to that, that kind of time. I suppose within 10 years of them having been released and they were already in the... He mentioned that they were already in the psyche of people and he didn't think he could do them justice, basically. So so he, he decided to stop um, before the 80s and just stick with the 50s, 60s, 70s. He talks about the fact that it could have been difficult to make it flow and that's when kind of Tris kind of helped him do that, make sure that he wasn't being too self-indulgent. He described it himself as being almost musical from his roots in Southport and the seaside tradition running through him. Uh, I didn't realise that he worked in a theatre when he was um, growing up in Southport. And the fact that there was an older style of entertainer there and the fact that this whole music, whole style being really inspirational to him, you know, so so you can feel that in, in the record itself. I mean, how would, how would you describe it if you were kind of to talk to someone about this compared to some of his other albums? Um, it's not one of my favourite of his albums, but there's a couple of songs on it that I really, really like. And I quite like his interpretations of some of the covers that I already like. And there's a few, obviously, that I didn't know on there. I didn't know the originals and stuff. Yeah. It's not one of my go-to albums, but there's a few go-to songs on it. Right, okay. That's a fair description. He did mention that the, the budget for the for the album grew as he kind of got more people involved with it and they were able to kind of um, get orchestral recordings on there, which he'd not been able to do on, on some of his previous albums as he'd liked to have done. And that kind of helped expand the sound of the album and give it this real lush production that the, the album's got. I, I was, it's grown on me as I listened to it. And um, yeah, it's, it's been quite enjoyable to, to research because there's a lot of interesting choices on there. Some of the songs, as you said, are really, really well known, and there's others that are kind of totally obscure. And um, I didn't even know the the band, never mind the songs. So, so we'll we'll get into that and, and go through it track by track. Um, just before we do that, there was um, we had a, a few comments on on Facebook. Let me just find those. Um, as ever, we appreciate anybody who kind of interacts with any of our posts on there. Um, we just asked the question. Who bought the album? What did they remember about it? Uh, what the favourite tracks were, that kind of thing. So, um, Andrew Bruff again. Uh, thank you, Andrew. He said that when Mark covers a song, you know you're onto a winner, probably best known by lay people for two massive hits, which were both covers. With Mark Armand, it's not a record company or producer just suggesting an artist to cover a song to generate a hit. Instead, it's a, a song that Mark knows well and can connect to, like a fine suit or fabulous makeup he wears them well and effort, effortlessly, sorry, effortlessly makes them his own. If you don't read the sleeve notes to this album and maybe you had limited knowledge of old ballads, you would think Mark had penned them himself. I'd agree with that on quite a few of the tracks, yeah. Uh, and like the Mark Boland clip from an interview at the end of I Have Lived, Mark isn't pigeonholed and with this album takes on the persona of many people, many people who have influenced him and made him the artist he is. I love it. 
much anticipated and certainly de delivered with 100% commitment. Very good, Andrew. Yeah, I agree with all of that you said there. Uh, Mike Whitaker, thanks, Mike. I remember buying this album on its release and liking it. I love London Boys and I Close My Eyes. In particular, I took note of the title track. It sounded a bit autobiographical for Mark at the time. It's very, very moving album. Uh, and again, one final comment from Daniel Ontiveros Carreon, who said, simply, Stardom Road, so moving. Thanks, Daniel. Right, let's move on to talking about each track individually. Track one, then, was I Have Lived, original artist uh, and writer of the track is Charles Aznavour, French legend, I think it is fair to say. Isn't someone that I'd ever listened to before I had heard of him. Uh, Mark felt that he could put his own stamp on this, as it's not one of Charles' most well-known songs. He did a version, uh, Charles Aznavour, with, with Liza Minnelli, which is, is quite a nice version. His recorded solo versions in his native French is, is more of a, an up-tempo and flamboyant version than Mark's. I do like Mark's vocals at the end of the, his version of it. I think it's a very good opener to the album. Um, and I'll explain my life and show you all I am and all have been. Good lyrics, you can see why it fits in with you know, what they were trying to do with this. I also like the lyric, when it's time to meet the father and explain my sins away, yes, I'll tell him I have lived. And I guess that's Mark kind of saying, if I had died, I'd had a pretty good life, but now I can kind of talk about it a bit more and write the next chapter. Um, it's actually the third Charles Aznavour song that he's covered. Uh, well, at the time, I don't know if he's done any since, to be fair. Uh, he'd also done Yesterday When I Was Young on his 1993 album, Absinthe. Have you got that one? Mm. And What Makes a Man a Man, also from 1993. But this was uh, an EP, 12 Years of Tears, which was a live recording at the, the Royal Albert Hall. I've actually uh, put together a, a Spotify playlist. Again, I'll put the link for that in the show notes. And the playlist is essentially all the original uh, recordings of the tracks that Mark's done on, on this album. And I thought it'd be quite a, a fun twist just to kind of score the um, the competition between Mark and the original artists. God. I'm not doing that. You're I knew you wouldn't own. be doing that. I've You're done it on my own. own. Good. <laughs> I don't think there's any point in even asking you. You're no fun. <laughs> I just don't understand how you can like reduce like a song with lyrics and music and emotion to a single number out of ten. No, I'm not doing it to a single number. I'm I'm basically doing You're doing out of hundred, are you? No. <laughs> I'm not even giving it a score. I'm giving it which one of the versions I like the best. Okay. And each time it's like one nil. So <laughs> So for this one for this one. It's 1-0 to the original artist. I prefer the Charles Aznavour version. Do you? Oh, yeah. I do. I prefer the Mark version. I thought you weren't playing. <laughs> well, I'm not doing the scoring, but I can tell you I prefer the Mark version. Oh, that's good now. I'm going to score you now. I said I can't find a bloody pen. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, I've got I've got Mark losing 1-0 to the original artist. So there you go. 
Uh, I'd feel like, I, I mean, Charles Aspinall, amazing, like great stock songs, like listen to him a bit, not loads, but yeah, he's, he's definitely on my rotation. Right. But um, I quite I quite like, I like songs in the, French. I don't know why. I like the more downbeat, like side that Mark brings to it, brings to his songs as well, um, which I you know I mean I don't know. You don't know whether, whether live they were different from Charles Aznavour, but they are they are a bit perky for me sometimes, given the subject matter. I want them to be a bit more like dreary and heartfelt. I just, I, I really, I've got to be honest. The, the, those two versions are very different. There's some of the there's some of the tracks on here that are quite similar. The, the arrangements are, you know, it's almost identical. This first track, very, very different. And and when I found it, because I had to find it in French first, and it's not an exact translation. And I was like, e- is this even the same song? And I eventually found an, an, a, a live version that Charles Aznavour had sung in English. And I was like, oh, it is. But I was like doubting it first because they're very, very different. But I like Mark's version, don't get me wrong, but I just really love, <laughs> I love the, his version. I just think it's really... Really lively, and <laughs> I don't know. I just, yeah, I, I dug it. I thought, right, I'm gonna, you dug it. I, I listened a bit more, Charles. Yeah. Did you? Did you go back to the fifties then as well? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not that old. Uh, anyway, we'll move on to track two, which uh, was the first single released from the record. Uh, it featured Sarah Cracknell, a, a cracking song. I close my eyes and count to ten. This was written by Clive Westlake, and it was originally uh, recorded by Dusty Springfield in 1968. It reached number four in the UK charts. Very well-known artist, Dusty Springfield. She had a number one with You Don't Have to See, You Love Me, uh, a number three with I Just Don't Know What to Do With Myself, several of the songs. So I, I think this was her third kind of most... Uh, highest chart in single. I think it was another song of hers that got to number four as well. But so it, it did well for her. Very close. As I was saying, this one is one of the ones that's closer in sound musically to the original. <laughs> I love the drama in the music. There's good interplay between Mark and Sarah in this one. Uh, it's a tight call. Which version do you prefer on the on here? It's my favourite one off the album. Okay. Um, I like his better because I really think that doing it as a duet brings something else to the song. Yeah, he said that himself, actually, yeah. Um, I Dusty version, like it, yeah. But I just feel like it brings a new element when you do it as a duet. And I just enjoy it a lot more. So his, his wins hands down for me, mostly because of the duet element. Like you say, it's not, not the arrangement's not significantly different. Yeah. But I like their voices work really well. And yeah, so. yeah, he said himself he's he's sung it a few times on his own, and he he, he don't like it as much. Mark, you know, he, he definitely that Englishness that she kind of brings to it. She was kind of sent Etienne around that time. I don't know whether they kind of faded a little bit. I think they were kind of early late nineties, well, early two thousands. But yeah, anyway, mm-hmm. um, he also said that he was very daunted doing a Dusty Springs. Uh, Dusty Springfield, and it's called Dusty Springsteen. Yeah. Dusty Springfield song. Uh, and this one was one of the ones suggested by producer Tris Prenner. Because Prenner, he, he said he was looking for like a big 60s, he was looking for a few big 60s ballads, and this was one of the ones that 
that was suggested and he took it on. So I'm going to agree with you. I think it just edges the, the Dusty Springfield version. So good equaliser from Mark. One all in my book. You've got him 2-0 up. Yes, right. <laughs> Come on. If you can't give me a bit of football pleasure at the minute, then you never will. My team, Sheffield Wednesday, actually managed to... We're absolutely terrible this season. We're bottom of the championship. This season? <laughs> we went up last season. Come on, we had, a, we had a good season last season. This season, we've been absolutely shocking. <laughs> but we managed to win high, against high-flying Blackburn Rovers 3-1 yesterday. So, I'm in, a, I'm in a good mood today. I was trying to bring balls into <laughs> your music podcast. <laughs> Our music podcast, darling. Yeah. Track three, then, uh, an Al Stewart song, uh, both in recording and writing, uh, called Bedsitter Images. This was released in 1967. Al Stewart, I guess, probably most famous for Year of the Cat, which reached number 31 in the UK charts. He had another big hit in the USA and Canada with Time Passages. I have heard that song because they played it. Ken, B- Ken Bruce used to play it quite a lot after Popmaster. It was one of them kind of long songs that he always played because he needed the toilet after doing his, his Popmaster bit. Uh, quite a nice song. Now, presumably the lyrics and title is a big, was a big draw here for Mark. Obviously, Soft Cell had released Bedsitter. The story, shiny big city, not quite living up to the reality of, of life. There's real pep and verve to Mark's version. As one of our Facebook commenters said, I think it was Andrew, Easy, to, it could be easy to mistake this for one of his own songs. Yeah, I'm going to give Mark the winner on this one. How about you? Yeah, probably the same. It's not one of my favourite songs um, off the album, though. So. Okay. So 2-1 Mark in my book, 3-0 in yours. Uh, track four, The London Boys. This was a David Bowie song, not one of his most well-known ones. Uh, it's from 1966. It was B-side to Rubber Band, one of his first single releases. I think this is a, a similar theme to the Bedsitter Images one. It could also be a Mark Harmon song, very dark lyrics of a 17-year-old who leaves home and becomes embroiled in the mod scene, uh, drugs, uh, wants to fit in with everyone. It was um, a record that Decca re-released as a Bowie A-side in 1975, but neither of the, the, the Bowie singles that I mentioned really charted. David Bowie himself praised Mark Armour's version, uh, his own being much more sombre and understated affair. I like the music on it, but Bowie's distinctive vocals, to me, aren't as strong as Mark's. Um, I've never been a huge David Bowie fan, I don't know about you. Some, but I really didn't like this. I'd never heard the original until I listened to that playlist the other day. And I was just like, oh, I'm not loving this at all. It does grow on you. Like, I'm not keen on either version, to be honest, as a song. Yeah. I agree, Mark, like the themes and language and stuff, it does sound like Mark could have written it. But I just, musically... I just find it like a bit meandering and a bit kind of, it doesn't really have any drama for me. So, yeah, I don't, I'm really not keen. I tend to like fast forward through it, Do jump it, yeah. So I, not... I don't mind it. I did, I did, as I've listened to it, it was one of them ones that kind of, I found myself humming a bit more. But yeah, I think, I think particularly vocally, I think Mark, Mark is stronger on this song and 
particularly on the chorus. So I'm going to give that another win to Mark. So he's, he's three one up for me. I just think it's weird because it's quite pretty musically. Yeah. And it doesn't fit with the lyrics and the yeah. like themes and stuff. And I'm just yeah. So I just I'm not keen on it. Do you think? Do you think Bowie's? Are you talking about Mark's version? Mark's or? version, but right. the, the Barry version, they, it's still got the same like yeah. melodies. It's just his lyrics. Of obviously, the delivery of the lyrics is very different and kind of much more sinister. But but then it didn't fit with like the the prettiness of the melody. So I just right. Yeah, I just uh, as a song for me, I just it, it just doesn't hang together at all. Fair enough. So, which version are you preferring here? I prefer Mark's, but I'm really not keen on either. Cracking. 4 0 up to Armand. 3 1 for me. Track 5, Strangers in the Night. This one, interesting choice. Um, clearly, there's been a lot of versions of this song. The most famous one being Frank Sinatra's. It was written by, well, there's three, three credits on this one Burke Camfort who wrote the music, uh, and then Charles Singleton and Eddie Sin- Snyder, sorry, they wrote the lyrics, and, and the story behind this was, it was um, originally a film score from a, a movie called The Man Could Get Killed, and they'd asked Frank Sinatra to sing um, a lyrical version, but the lyrics that they gave him, he kind of dismissed them out of hand, it was originally called Betty Bye. Uh, so he said, look, if you can get someone else to come up with something a bit better, I'll, I'll, I'll sing it. And there was a couple of other versions, I think, that were rejected as well until um, Charles and Eddie, not the Charles and Eddie that we know, uh, finally getting approval after taking the cue from the film where the two main protagonists exchange glances in a bar and become lovers at the end of the film. Again, I can see the appeal to Mark. Um, Is that a hallmark leader? <laughs> it could well be look it up look it up I think he found it a bit of a challenge he, he said that he found it a challenge this song unsurprised I'm surprised he did it to be fair he wanted a sleazier version he wanted to put a different slant on it but come on you're never going to out Crimson Archer are you? But it's not sleazy is it that version it's not that's not come through I don't think yeah so that's one back for the originals for me. I'm, I'm giving that one to Sinatra by a, a clear margin. So that's 3-2, still marking the lead. What about you? Yeah, I'd probably, probably just edge it to Sinatra. I think it's an enjoyable version. It's all right. Let's skip yeah, it. look, I, I don't dislike it but, again. But, but I'm not sure that there's enough point of difference no. to make it a good cover. No. Like a good cover is a cover that brings something new and don't think it does that one yeah I think it's or it just it's just a good version it's it, not a it's not a good cover yeah or the artist is is very different sonically and tries to do it different sonically mm. where you're right not on this one uh right we're on to track six now which is the ballad of sad young men um this was first released by I don't know how to pronounce this. I'm going to say Tanny Slits or Sates. Uh, all the way back in 1959, it was written by Fran Landersman and Tommy Wolf, And it came to prominence um, by when it was recorded by Roberta Flack from her debut album, First Take, uh, in 1969. It actually reached number one in, in America 
Uh, number 47 in um, the UK, that's the album I'm talking about, first take. The the single itself, um, I don't know whether it, in fact, I don't think it was released as a single. Her most famous songs were The First Time I Ever Saw Your Face, which reached number 14 in 1972 in the UK. And of course, Killing Me Softly, um, which was from 1973 and reached number six. Later covered by the Fugees, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't really know much about Roberta Flack, so it was quite interesting visiting that. Um, Mark did his version as a duet with Anthony Hegarty of Anthony and the Johnsons. He came to prominence, uh, the band, uh, Anthony and the Johnsons, after I Am A Bird won the Mercury Music Prize in 2005. Personally, I'm not a huge fan of his voice. Um, very distinctive. It's got a kind of a, a tremulous quality to it. I would say he was kind of the, the male, what's her name? Nina Simone. <laughs> okay. Another song with a story behind it this time. It's a guy alone in a bar, drinking up at night and trying not to drown, realising his life is on the turn and that the party has moved on. I really, really like that Roberta Flack version. I was very, very impressed by that. Uh, the vocal, simple arrangement of it. I think it's quite stunning. I'm going to give it to the originals again for me on this one. It's a, it's an equaliser. It's three all. It's a draw for me. I'm really not that keen on it. You know, I version. Okay. I quite like the song, but I just don't feel like either version quite hits what I want from that song. God, you're harsh. I am. Okay, so you've got four one mark. I'm mm. three all. We're on to the title track of the album, track seven, Stardom Road, which was written by Terry Stamp and Jim Avery of Third World War. Yeah, I'd never heard of them. They were English blues rock, hard rock, and post-punk band from 1970. They had two albums in 71 and 72 before they split up, because they went out of funds, basically. And their version sounds like it's sung by someone who's about to die. <laughs> uh, yeah, listen, listen to the original version. Very, very interesting. Minus points for the original version for the pronunciation of Stardom Road. Um, you're calling me harsh. Now you're criticising people's accents. <laughs> I mean, it says like Stardom and it's called Stardom. I just found that a bit weird. It's pretty obscure, this song, So, but as ever, you can see this lyrical appeal that I'd give to Mark. It's a song about rejection and being told you're not good enough. You haven't got the star quality. You aren't going to make it. Now, to be fair to the original version... It is a pretty haunting one. But um, Mark's version with the harp as his main foil, I think, is a bit more accessible. So I'm going to give this one to Mark. 4-3. He takes the lead again in this dramatic game. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's Mark. I mean, I just... I mean, but I partly probably because I just know his version already. Right. Okay. I found the other one quite difficult. To, yeah. to listen to and kind of get into. So. Crikey. We're agreeing quite a lot today. What's going on? Right, let's see if that continues. So you've got 5-1 mark. I've got 4-3 mark. Um, track 8 is the wonderfully glamorous Kish. Kitch. Kitch. 
this apparently was a big hit in Germany. Who knew? It was um, written and performed by twin brothers from Leeds, Paul Ryan, who was a songwriter, and Barry Ryan. Um, their most successful hit was the UK number two song, Eloise, which also was number one in 17 different countries. Do you know that song? Eloise. It was covered by The Damned. Oh, I know The Damned version. Yeah, which reached number three. Uh, and Barry Ryan said it was a better version of his own. Yeah, I, I knew that. I'm, I'm not a big fan of The Damned. I didn't really know a lot of their stuff, but it was one of the ones that... Um, Michelle put on a mixtape for me when she was trying to get me into some different stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, interestingly, uh, the song Eloise, one of the good stories behind that is that uh, it was five and a half minutes long, which was long for a, a single release back then. And Freddie Mer- Mercury used it as an argument to the record company for releasing Bohemian Rhapsody because they were saying it was nowhere. We're releasing this as a single too long. He said, look, well, Eloise was five and a half minutes long. It got to number two. Come on. So, uh, yeah, good bit of history there for the for the Ryan brothers. Um, it was released by Barry Ryan in 1970. You can see it must be right up Mark Street. He sings it with real gusto. You can tell he's enjoying himself greatly. The start is it's almost identical. If you listen to two versions side by side, and it's, it's very similar musically throughout. Barry Ryan's delivery is almost kind of feminine. What do you call that voice? Is it falsetto, vibrato? What, high? Yeah. Falsetto. Yeah. Um, Sounds a little more desperate, really. So I think I'm going to give this one to Mark. So I've got him 5-3 in front. Uh, It's equal for me. I really don't like this song at all. Do you not? (laughs) There's a lot of people love this song looking on like forums and that. I'm surprised you don't like it. I thought mm. you'd like this one. I just, I don't know. I just really don't like it. Okay. Well, our green with things didn't last very long, did it? No. <laughs> Ten is not too, <laughs> So, 5-3 to Mark, to me. 5-1 to you. Um, number nine was Backstage I'm Lonely, featuring both Jules Holland and Kiki D. This was written by Fred Anisfield. Uh, Willie Dennison. It's got a writing credit for Mark on it, so I'm guessing that he added extra lyrics to it. And um, it was a, a tribute to Gene Pitney, who released and sung the song in 1966. Uh, he passed away in, in 2006. And, of course, Mark had the, the number one hit with Something's Got on Hold of My Heart with, with Gene Pitney. Um, and it was actually, I didn't realise it was Gene Pitney's only UK number one. Um, Gene Pitney's version of this song reached number five in 1967. Um, too close to call for me on this one. I've given this one a score draw, so still 5 3 to mark to me. Mm. What about uh, you? Do you like the song? It's all right, it's not one of my favorites. I'd probably give it to Gene Pitney, but only just okay. So 5 2. Uh, tenth track is Dream Lover. This is a, a Bobby Darin song from 1959 that reached, surprisingly, only number two in America. Kept off the top spot by Battle of New Orleans by Johnny Horton, a song that I don't know. I don't know why he covered this one. I just, I don't think it's, I just don't think he it brings anything new to it. 
clear winner for the original for me. Really? See, yeah. I think he brings like a dreaminess and a longing to it that is not in the bounciness of the original. <laughs> like, and I much prefer his version. Really? And listened to it on repeat when I first got the oh, album. No. Really like it. This is better. this is one song on here that I just think he should have just left off and done somewhere else or not bothered. But well, that's interesting that you like it. So the originals are back in it for me. Five four. You've gone six three now to Mark. Right. Uh, there's three more tracks to do. We've got track eleven, Happy Heart. I've got a right earworm for this one today. I listened to it a couple of times today. This was written by James Last and Jackie Ray. Uh, it's from 1969. It was sung by Andy Williams. It reached number 22 in the American charts. Lyrically, this one is about finding love and being deliriously happy about it. Quite a simple premise to it. Um, interestingly, Petula Clark and Andy Williams both released versions of the song exactly at the same time. The Andy Williams version did slightly better in, in its charting. History, some lyrics in there. There's a certain sound always follows me around. When you're close to me, you will hear it. Real tight call again for me on this one, on which one's a better version. I really love Williams' joyous rendition of the chorus and outro, but Mark holds his own, and I'm going for another tie. So Mark's holding on here, 5-4 in front still, okay? Uh, probably Mark, but mainly I think because I knew that version. I don't know the other one. So, and it didn't, it didn't, it like impressed me on the sort of first listen. Hmm. Okay. It's not, it's not a favourite off the album. I'm not, it's not, I'm not that keen on it anyway. I think you should listen to it a couple more times and get an earworm like me. No, I've had the earworm. It just, I still wasn't keen. <laughs> wow. Okay. So that's, what are you, you 7-3 now, aren't you? And I'm 5-4. I don't know. You're, you're in charge of the scores. So anyway. Don't do numbers. Mark's going to win for you. Uh, track 12, this is the um, original song that Mark wrote, Redeem Me. So he talks about finishing the album with, with an original song. Um, as the theme of it is pretty much that um, he wanted to show with a message that he was writing songs again, that it fits in... Um, with the theme of the, the fact that it's a recovery record. I think it fits in well with some of the classic songs on here. I think if if you hadn't told me it was Marx and said that like it's one of these old time writers, mm. I could have kind of seen that, that that was the case. I wouldn't have questioned it. So I think it's a song about optimism and moving forward, being true to yourself. It's a very, very good song, actually. Do you like it? Hmm. I think he's quite he's quite down on his songwriting. I, I I found in some of the interviews that I read from when this album was released, you know, he quite often says, "Oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not in the same league as so and so. I could never write songs like this." But I think he's a decent songwriter. To be fair, I think he needs to uh, believe in himself a bit. He, was, he even sounded like he was talking about the fact that he didn't he wouldn't really mind that much if he never kind of wrote another album of his original songs you know he quite liked the freedom that singing covers gave him and he could you know interpret things in a different way and that he didn't feel the same pressure as when he was singing his own songs so, so that was quite interesting um anything else about redeem me um i mean i like it 
It's not a favourite. Um, but it was, it was just good to hear. Good that he was back. Good that he wrote something. Yeah. So, although on its own, it isn't a favourite. I kind of like what it sort of stood for. Where and it represents. Why it was there and, yeah. 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 I'd agree with that. So the actual final track, which I'm guessing the, the record company said, look, if you're gonna do <laughs> if you're gonna do this song, it's gotta be the final song, which is The Curtain Falls, written by Sol Weinstein. Weinstein? Weinstein probably. From the early sixties, is sung again by Bobby Darin, so he's the uh, the artist that is covered twice on this. Um a first-person perspective of a life on stage and giving one's cell to the audience night after night. Famously said by uh, Sammy Davis Jr. when talking about Bobby Darin that he was the one performer that he wouldn't follow onto the stage. Bobby Darin uh, tragically passed away when he was only 37. Um, he had suffered from rheumatic fever when he was a boy. He nearly died. And it weakened his heart, and he knew he was kind of living on borrowed time. Um, he checked himself in for open heart surgery, and he didn't survive the operation, unfortunately. There is a movie, a biopic on Bobby Darin, starring uh, Kevin Spacey. I think it was early 2000s. It might have been around the time of this record release, actually. 2004, maybe. Uh, it's called Beyond the Sea. Um, which was obviously one of Bobby's most famous songs. Other ones that, of his that I like, um, Splish Splash. I remember having, I think my mum and dad had a, an old 45 of that, and there's another song, Multiplication. really like that as well. In terms of which version is better, i got to go for the Bobby Darian version, and I think it's... His vocal performance that wins it for me, the arrangement of it, really like it. Kate, any uh, any thoughts on that? The curtain falls. You you've not heard the original you said to me earlier, yeah? And um, I don't think I listened. Maybe I stopped the playlist by then. <laughs> well, maybe it just didn't make an impression. I don't know. I like it. Um. And I like it as an album finisher. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Mark for me. Okay. So, I can't remember what the score is, but Mark wins easy for you. Sorry, Mark Harmon fans. For me, it's a draw between Mark and the originals. Um, I just think Bobby Darren's vocals are more powerful, effortless. I was trying to figure out when this was recorded because I don't think he released it as a single, not that I could find anyway. It was on a, I found the version from a 1963 uh, recording in, in Las Vegas. I think that's the one that's on the, the playlist that I put together as well. Um, but yeah, I think it's a, obviously the obvious closer for the album. Uh, and I think the album's put together well. In terms of score, we always score our albums out of 10. I was a bit harsh last time. I prefer Heart and Snow over this album. Um, I just think it's a bit deeper. Um, but I only scored it seven and a half. I probably should have given it an eight. Heart and Snow. 
I was toying between the two. On this one, I was toying between a seven and seven and a half. So I'm gonna get, I'm gonna mark this one up slightly. So I'm gonna give this a seven and a half. Good album. I enjoyed it actually, and it, it grew on me. And most of Mark's versions are, are, are really good. Um, it was only the Dream Lover one that really was an easy victory for me for Bobby Darren, which you disagree with. But so, what are you gonna score the the record? Uh, probably a seven. Um... Like I said at the beginning, like it's just not a go-to album for me. But there's a couple of songs on there, three, I think, that I really, really like. Yeah. Um, and tend to just listen to on their own. So. There we go. So Stardom Road scores 14.5 out of 20. Pretty credit, creditable. Um, yeah, so let's move on to talk about the UK singles, albums, movies, and what was showing on the telly in 2007, the summer of and June specifically. Fourth of June, 2007 was the release date of Stardom Road. So that is the singles and album charts from the UK that we are looking at. Most of the songs, We'd never heard, so we watched the uh, the YouTube, uh, well, the videos for all the songs on YouTube last night. Wasn't the best hour of my life. <laughs> it was quite funny uh, in parts. Just outside the top ten, a very honourable mention for the wonderful um, heavyweight champion of the world by Reverend and the Makers, a fine Sheffield band. I actually saw John McClure yesterday at the match. Um... Brilliant song, that. You quite like Reverend the Makers, don't you? Mm -hmm. uh, number 10 in the single charts was Akon with Don't Matter. He had a massive hit, didn't he? I, I should have looked that up. I can't remember what his big hit was. <clears throat> this one didn't really hit me, but it was the first of four of the top 10 featuring samples. So this was a, a theme of all these top 10 songs. Um... There was this one, uh, which sampled Zimbabwe by Bob Marley and the Wailers. Kate, what did you think to this Acon song? Yeah, nothing. <laughs> I've tried not to think about it. I just, the whole, the whole top ten was clubbing music for me. And it was clubbing music at a point where I went to a club, like the, probably the last time... Not, not now, we've been out since then, but around that time, um, the last club that I went to was in 2005, I want to say, for someone's birthday. And I stood there and I just thought, I absolutely hate every single song that they've played and don't want to dance. I, don't, I love dancing, you know, like I, and I'll like stay on the dance floor, stuff that I'm not even that fussed about, like... And I was lit. I remember standing in this club and just thinking, I hate all the music that's being played. <laughs> so I just, and I don't even want to dance to it. And that's that was like the last time that I think I went out clubbing. And, it, and then, like, yeah. And there was just a period in the noughties where it just, it was all about the beat. The lyrics got lost. The melody wasn't there. The music wasn't there for me. It was just about the beat. And I just, I, I don't enjoy that kind of music at all. Yeah. So yeah, that the whole of that top ten, I was like, every song has the same beat. 
Yeah, I, I agree with most of that. Um, there's a couple in there that I didn't mind, to be fair. Uh, number nine wasn't one of them. The Girls by Calvin Harris, I just thought was absolutely dreadful. <laughs> it's one of the worst songs I've ever heard. <laughs> Terrible. Uh, number eight, I thought that was all right. The the Twang had a song called Either Way. Yeah, to be fair, that was that was the, uh, a bit of an outlier, wasn't it? Yeah, so the Twang uh, from Birmingham, they... They were. I don't know whether they're still around. I don't know whether they're still going. They did get quite a lot of airplay on Six Music. I'm guessing it was around this time in the UK. And they, when I was listening to it, I was like thinking, because there's kind of a, a, a rapping or speaking bit within there. I thought these, these sound like the blooming Birmingham version of the streets. And then I read the sleeve notes for the song and it, some of it was produced by Mike Skinner from the streets. So definitely some synergy happening there. Uh, track seven, I didn't like at all. I'd, I'd heard of Timberland. The only, the only reason I'd heard of Timberland is because he's name-checked in one of the uh, songs by Weezer. He talks, Timberland knows a way to get to the top of the charts. Da, 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 da. You've never heard of Timberland? Not really. <laughs> Maybe if I wrote with him, I could perfect the art. Okay. I think that's Pork and Beans, that song called. I, I like that song. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, there's three of them in there: Timberland, Nelly Furtado, and I quite like Nelly Furtado's voice, but she was kind of singing it weird as well. Well, she she did her album, didn't she? That she had, which we have. Well, I have. War and Nelly. Then, War yeah, Nelly. Um, which was, and then yeah, there was she a... was looking. For, I think she was just looking for like a harder sound and to find more her own right. voice rather than a record company voice, which I think the first album yeah. quite strongly was. Um, and I wasn't keen on a lot of the stuff that she then did, but you could sort of see what she was trying to get to. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it wasn't for me, but I could kind of see where, why she was doing what she was doing. Yeah, she had a huge hit in the UK. <clears throat> it must have been top five. I'm like a bird. Yeah. Um, and then the third one on this this track was Justin Timberlake, um, looking very young back then. I mean, how long ago is this? Is 16 years ago, isn't it? Because um, I know when the album was released, it was kind of a month before Mark's 50th birthday. So I worked out he was he must be 66 now. Um, yeah, so I didn't like that at all. Number seven. Number six, again, video was a bit weird. Some bloody kids dressed in not much with playing Cupid with bows and arrows, shooting people in the backside. Uh, I'm talking about um, a song by Gym Class Heroes called Cupid's Choke Hold, which was another one with a sample in, this time sampling Supertramp's Wonderful Breakfast in America. Oh, yeah, let's just move on, I think. Unless you've got anything to say, which you probably haven't. No. Uh, number five, Maroon 5, makes me wonder. I hadn't heard this song. We had their debut album, which was uh, Songs About Jane, which I quite liked. Um, yeah, it was all right. This better than a lot of the other stuff in here, but... I wouldn't kind of go out of my way to listen to but it, it was, again. It was the same. It was like there was a some sort of voice altering 
over the vo- over the vocals and the videos. And then there was just a dump 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 beat going on. Yeah. <laughs> It was just like, oh, it just, it was so samey to all the other stuff in the thing. And again, the theme on the video is like him looking pretty with girls around him. And... Yeah, that's standard for their videos. <laughs> is it? I've, I've not really seen many of them, but I mean, a lot of the others were like that in this top 10 as well. Mm. You know, it was that kind of, everyone, I said to you, didn't I? I said, look, it's like bloody a shiny convention. All the videos are like, if it's not the, the set that's shiny, it's their outfits or the makeup or... Or whatever. Uh, someone that I've never heard of at number four, Hello, Goodbye, all one word. Their song here in brackets, In Your Arms. Close brackets. Another one with a sample. This time it's sampling Avril Lavigne's Complicated. <sighs> yeah, move on again. Uh, Beyonce and Shakira. I didn't even know they'd done a duet, to be fair. I'd never heard this song before. This is Beautiful Liar at number three. Uh, just dancey clubby stuff like you said number two was Real Girl by Mutia Buena uh, the final sample this time it was Lenny Kravitz and his brilliant song It Ain't Over Till It's Over actually I didn't mind that song I quite like the word where she'd use that sample and in the video was this the video where she ended up looking like um, the woman out of Goldfinger who gets covered, Sheena, someone. I can't remember who it was. Uh, was that the video where she's suddenly like covered in was gold? That, was that not the next one? Oh, was it Rihanna? That was that one. Oh, was it Rihanna? Rihanna was at number one with Umbrella, and I do remember that one because it was just everywhere. Featuring Jay Z. Ella, Ella, Ella. But yeah, terrible top 10, really. Terrible. Uh, Albums, a lot better. Wouldn't it be difficult to be a lot better than that, would it? Uh, Number 10, Double Up by R. Kelly. Yeah, whatever. Uh, An artist called Cascada with Every Time We Touch the Album at 9. I watched, I thought, I've never heard of Cascada. I didn't even know it was a band. It was a female singer... Dyed blonde hair, long legs, short skirt. <laughs> you didn't notice the music, you were just distracted. What music? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, just typical kind of quick dance song. Yeah, not my thing at all. Uh, number eight was Yours Truly Angry Mob by the Kaiser she- she- Chiefs. Another Leeds band in there. Um, lead single, I'm presuming, I think was Ruby. Um, didn't have the album. We had the original album, Employment, but this was their second album. Some good stuff on there, though. I do remember one or two of the songs off the back of that one. Uh, the best album in the top ten, and probably best album of the year, was Arctic Monkeys. Um, on its way down from its number one spot, Favorite Worst Nightmare, their second album. What a record! What a record! Some classic singles on there. Their lead single off that, Brian Storm. Remember hearing it and thinking, wow. Brilliant. Because you're always a bit wary when someone's done a good debut and what are they going to come up with next. Number six uh, in this week in the charts was Call Me Irresponsible from Michael Bublé. Don't mind a bit of the Bublé. 
Mika at number five with Life in Cartoon Motion, which I think was his debut. That did get to number one as well. Uh, the big single off that one, if it was that one I'm thinking of, was... Uh, oh, what's it called, Kate? Save me. Mika. The Grace Kelly one. Grace Kelly, thank you. Well done. Yes, good song. I like that. Amy Winehouse at number four, another former number one album, uh, Back to Black. Again, this was her second record and probably her most successful and best album. Number three, new in for The Pigeon Detectives. Again, I think they were, were they from Leeds as well? I think they were. Uh, Wait For Me was the name of their album. I haven't heard it. Again, heard some of their stuff on Six Music. Thought it was all right, but not enough. For me to go out and buy it. Uh, Linkin Park, we're at number two with Minutes to Midnight. I'm not a Linkin Park fan. You got a couple of their songs, I think, didn't you, yeah. around that time? But, yeah, I'm not not a fan. And then uh, the number one album was It Won't Be Soon Before Long uh, by Maroon 5. And apparently the title for the album, It Won't Be Soon Before Long, was a catchphrase that they used to get them through their long tours. It's interesting how different the album chart is. Yes, like I thought it's, that. It's a massive difference. And you can tell that, like what I was saying about the singles songs being clubbing songs. Yeah. Like, they just, they were not, they were not like albums. They were not things that people were buying albums of. Yep. I totally agree. Right, let's have a quick look at the UK cinema box office uh, for the same week. I'm not going to go through these all because I know Kate won't have seen them. And, um, yeah, there's, I think there's probably one film in here I've seen, maybe two. Number nine was Mr Bean's Holiday with the tagline, Disaster Has a Passport. I'm not a fan of Mr Bean. Mr Bean is a character by uh, English comedian Rowan Atkinson. Do you like him or not? The kids went through a phase of watching the other cartoon of Mr Bean, didn't they? And yeah, I really like it. I mean, you know, it's not the sort of humour that I really enjoy. It. It's too cringy for me. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, number eight was 28 Weeks Later. Now, I haven't seen this film. We saw the original, the 28 Days Later, the zombie ap- apocalypse film. It was the rage virus that wiped everyone out. The guy wakes up in a hospital and he's, he's on his own. I think I've seen this. You think you've seen the sequel? I think I've seen the sequel. I haven't. On it's... the telly, or right? <laughs> yeah. So it was starring Robert Carlyle and Jeremy Renner, who is now famous for being um, the bow and arrow guy out of the Avengers, Bullseye. Um, so yeah, I might, I might watch that actually. I quite liked Twenty Eight Days Later. It's a Danny Boyle film. Um, interestingly. Happy Heart was at the end of another Danny Boyle film. Uh, remember Shallow Grave? Mm. He used that as a final scene when Ewan McGregor kind of gets bumped off by, I think he ends up, it's a spade or something, he ends up with it in his heart anyway. A tangent there. Um, yeah, so I might go back and watch that. Uh, it's got good good reviews. Uh Seven and six, never heard of. Five. You know, I think that Bridge to Terabithia is really famous. I've not seen it. I think it is supposed to be supposed to be good. Never even heard of it, to be fair. Uh, the Hitcher was at six. 
Five, we did see this quite recently, Zodiac. Uh, I didn't realise it was a David Fincher film, to be honest, starring uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, who was kind of a mad reporter. It was the... Oh, right, yeah, yeah. It was, it was a serial killer. He was a serial killer, yeah. That they, I yeah. don't think they've ever found him, to be fair. And he was, What was his premise? He, he sent um, notes or something, didn't he, to the, the, this yeah, journalist? Yeah, in code. Yeah. Every so often, like on my various feeds, the algorithm will be like, yeah. new information on the Zodiac killer. Right, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. His final note decoded. <laughs> It was all right. I was a bit disappointed in it, to be fair. It, it, it wasn't as good as I thought it was going to be. Um, Mark Ruffalo's also in that. Another gone on to probably be more famous for being Incredible Hulk in the, in the Avengers. Uh, I called Jeremy Renner's character Bullseye, it's Hawkeye. Okay. Just before someone writes I don't know what you're on about, so yeah. you, you just crackle. Yeah. Uh, number four, Paradise Lost. I'm guessing that's after the... Was that a book? I have literally no clue. Yeah, it's let's move on to then. Do with that. I don't know. Spider-Man 3 was at 3, directed by Sam Raimi, and it was starring Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst. It was that section of the um, the Spider-Man franchise. Pretty good. Um, number 2, Wedding Days. I kind of remember this film, but I didn't see it. Uh, Jason Biggs, who was from American Pie, and Isla Fisher. Was she Australian? Was she in Neighbours or mm, Home and Away or one of them? Uh, and the number one movie was Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. I've seen one or two of these films, but not on purpose. They were just kind of on at Christmas or something. I think I watched one of them with the kids, but yeah. Bit, yeah, I mean, I'm not, bit uh, daft. I'm not a Johnny Depp fan and I'm not a Kieran Knight fan, so I kind of try not to watch them. Quite like Jack Davenport. He's the guy who was in... Um, this life. This life. And I like... very much like Jack Davenport, but not enough to make me watch Pirates <laughs> of the Caribbean. Uh, and, and I've got a bit of time for Orlando Bloom as well, who was in uh, Lord of the Rings and quite a few other bits and pieces as well. So that was uh, that was the, the movies. Uh, television was a bit, bit more interesting, but only for the fact that it was clearly around that time when the whole reality TV thing was massive, including... Excuse me, stuff like The X Factor, where it was announced that Danny Minogue was replacing Louis Walsh in the UK version of this, um, along with Simon Cowell and Sharon Osbourne, daughter, of course, of Ozzy Osbourne. Walsh had intended to leave the show, but decides later to return after being invited back. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was controversy in Celebrity Big Brother, earlier in the year, and in the eighth series of the just normal Big Brother, someone was thrown out of the show after he used the word nigger during a conversation with another contestant. Um, I'll come back to the 8th of June. On the 9th of June, Lee Mead wins BBC One's Any Dream Will Do. So this is was another kind of let's find a great singer type one and they were trying to find someone to play the lead in Joseph and his technical a dream coat um, and he went on to star in that at the Adelphi Theatre um, it was the debut also of Britain's Got Talent a programme that I have never watched another Simon Cowell thing uh, also on ITV 
and the winner of this uh, was to win a hundred thousand pounds and I think it almost only lasted six weeks because um, where is it in fact it was less than that it must have they must have had it on like every other night or something June the 17th so only about a week, a week and a half later opera singer Paul Potts wins the first series of Britain's Got Talent he is pretty impressive his, his voice to be fair um, Master Chef goes all this far this way back. Uh, Nadia Sawala won the 2007 series of that, and uh, it was reported that um, a guy was removed from Britain's Got Talent. Just so this must have been a couple of it must have got quite far in it two days before the final, because uh, someone alerted the police that he was on the sex offenders register, so that was the end of him. And then on the third series of The Apprentice, we watched a few of them, didn't we? I can't remember this particular guy. Simon Ambrose won, won this series. The one that sticks in my mind is obviously the one where Sean uh, Gabidon won it, which was probably five or six years ago now because he used to play football with uh, her dad. Um, Quick through on it, you probably do know him. Simon Ambrose? I see a picture of him because we were watching it. I, like think, I think we only watched the first two series. Um, you look him up. Okay, he's not. He's coming. Not coming up on my thing. Yeah, but they were all a bit. I think after that second one, who you know the one that Katie Hopkins was in. Oh god, mm. I think I just had I'd had enough at that point. But you could be right. It might have been a bit later. And then going back to the the news on the eighth of June, um, Adele Adkins, a nineteen year old singer from London, makes a television debut on BBC Two's Later with Jules Holland. Do you recognise him? No, to be fair. Do you? No, but I never recognise anyone. So I don't mean anything, <laughs> does it? No, no, I don't recognise him. Um, yeah, we, we do like, later with Jules Holland, there's been some absolutely brilliant bands and performances on there. She was performing her song Daydreamer, becoming one of the first artists to appear on the show without having released a record because producer Alison Howe booked her after hearing a demo tape. And of course, she has gone on to be known better just as Adele. And her debut album, 19, was released six months later uh, in January 2008. So there we are. We're tying it all back musically. Um, we will now go on to review a couple of recent gigs that we've been to and give you our top threes, which are top three favourite duets. Good to get back seeing live music. It had been a, a little while. Um, and I think it's fair to say that both nights that we went on, um, we didn't really didn't fancy going, did we? No, really not. But we knew we wouldn't, so we bought tickets beforehand just to make sure that we uh, we went there. The first was on a on a Sunday evening. We travelled over to York. It was absolutely chucking it down with rain, dark, miserable. Couldn't park near the venue, so we had a... Well, I dropped you off the nine. We had a... A bit of a walk there, but yeah, well worth it. We went to see Holy Moly and the Crackers at the Crescent. I, I like the venue. Um, good views. Reminds me a bit of the Leadmill, to be honest. I think that's why I quite like it. Um, and sadly, it's their kind of... I don't know whether they were saying goodbye or not. I couldn't quite work it out. I've seen a few posts since saying that they're not saying goodbye forever. They're just having a break. Um, lead singer... Uh, Ruth Patterson's doing a lot of solo stuff. We went to see Ruth and we talked about Ruth before. Um, 
she, well, she's called Ruth Lyon now, isn't she? She, mm. she changed the name. But they were absolutely brilliant. Superb live. I'd say go and watch them, but you've missed your chance for a while at least. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> So if, listen then. Yeah, if, if you don't know them, um, they're set off as kind of a, a folk outfit and their sounds evolved. They've become a lot more kind of poppy and, and rocky, but they do write a good melody. They've got a, uh, a good accordionist in there. Um, like the drummer and um, yeah just great energy great songs good banter in between really like the interplay in the uh, performances and yeah the, it, it was it was just really a really good night um, we unfortunately we missed the support because we were too busy faffing I'm trying to get somewhere to park mm. but yeah it was a great night I'm, I'm really glad we went on that I would um, highly recommend their music and um, if they do do some future live dates definitely go and get tickets to go and see them you you, you won't regret it if you, but also you their like so, live the music. stuff that they're doing their solo projects yeah so. yeah also good so worth having a look at yeah absolutely and then <laughs> just uh, three nights ago um the cold has hit the uk we're, we're in a cold snap so it's been very frosty very cold you've got a bit of a cold so you weren't you weren't feeling like it even though you really loved you said if you didn't love the band that much you wouldn't have gone there i, I didn't know anything about this band we're talking about spectre so not spelt the same way as spectre from james bond but spell spec s-p-e-c-t-o-r uh spectre um they were formed in London, I think about 10, 11 years ago, because they were talking about when they first played at the, we mm. saw them at the Leeds University, which was a bit of an, an odd experience, the student union there. I felt a little bit out of place, it has to be said. <laughs> <laughs> it's a while since I've been in a, a student union. Did um, you feel old? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did a little bit. Um, but there were a few they other. They started performing in 2011. There you go. It was weird for me because obviously I went to Leeds Uni and I haven't been in the union building since about 1996, maybe. <laughs> it was really, I was like, oh, it's all changed. Like, it, was, it was that weird mix of like, it's vaguely familiar, but it's totally different at the same time. So it was kind of weird, but. I don't. I didn't think it was that young a crowd. To be honest, I expected it to be younger than it was. Did you? Yeah. There, were, there was a real mix. I think the ones because we kind of stood up at the back. Um, it was a good view from up there, actually. But down on the the floor, I think there probably were a younger crowd. But... And reliably, someone came up and drunkenly high fived me halfway through the gig. I was so confused. I like looked around and this guy was just standing there with his hand up, and I was like, "Hello." <laughs> Hello, is it me you're looking for? You wanted a high five, and I was like, I'm very uncomfortable with this, but all right. <laughs> if you want my germs, here you go. Like, thankfully, he then went away, so it was okay. <laughs> yeah, there was like, I mean, just stood in front of us as well, there was a dad and his, his lad. I mean, his lad must have been like 11, 12. Did you notice? I mean, they both uh, got like baseball caps on. Well, it was supposed to be over 14s, wasn't it? But yeah, yeah I haven't said he was younger than that. Yeah, but I mean, they were loving it. So we caught the end of the uh, probably the last two or three songs, the support band, um, and they dedicated their final song to Shane McGowan, who passed away 
earlier that day from the Pogues. Um, I wasn't that bothered about them. It's just, I don't know. It was a bit too Gaelic and a bit Scottish sounding. But they were all right. I, don't, I like them. I'm, I haven't haven't missed them yet. But I, um, Can you remember I what have, they were called? I have followed them. Brogyle. I've probably said yeah. that wrong because obviously it's a Gaelic word. Okay. But, yeah. But yeah, I quite liked them. Okay. So they've had a follow from you. So well done, Brogyle. Um, and then I hadn't. I didn't really know anything about Spectre, I'll, I'll be honest. I'd, I'd managed to listen. I had a really busy week. I'd been in London for work, but I'd listened to probably about half a dozen of their songs a week before, and that was it. So in some ways, I was quite looking forward to not, like it was like going back to the old days when you used to turn up and, you know, it was potluck if they were any good, these bands that you just used to go and see. Um, but I they were decent, actually. He was, um, as a front man, when, I, when he came on the stage, <clears throat> I was like, wow, and his movement looked—he looked a bit awkward, and he looks a bit geeky. He looks a bit. He reminded me of kind of um, a cross between kind of um, Woody Allen. <laughs> he got a bit of Jarvis in him, a bit of Jarvis Cocker, uh, and someone else as well, Buddy Holly, I think. <laughs> Just glasses. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> but he was um, very charismatic. He, he, he again. Great interplay with the crowd. What was your favourite bit? It wasn't my favourite, but it just made me laugh because um, someone in the crowd was like, he was like, oh, do you want me to take a picture? And then he was like, oh, be real. So he took a be real with this girl. I mean, obviously it was a late one because mine had pinged much earlier in the day when I was driving back from parents' evening. That's what I knew. But it wasn't a, but, um, it was just funny. I was like, be real. Is that the thing that Sam and Charlotte do? I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> you were just like, what? <laughs> you probably need to explain because our audience is around our age and not everyone is as up to date on social media as you are. What What is the premise of be real? So it pings you and you take a photograph, which is front and back camera simultaneously. And it's supposed to be like your real life. Oh. What's happening. So it's random when it occurs. So it just pings you in the day. And obviously it pings everyone at the same time. So we were driving back oh. from parents even. And I had my phone attached to the car. Playing okay. music, And it, right. it be real. <laughs> and Charlotte was like, oh, oh, is it time to be real? <laughs> so I grabbed her phone out so she could do hers. Obviously I was driving, so I didn't do mine. Oh, um, I was going to say, does it do it automatically? No, no, no. no, no. Right, you okay. have to like take the so it's right. like i mean it is curated but it's okay. you have you have a very short window of time that you can take it in yeah so the idea is it forces people not to like pose or curate okay. the photograph so how did they do theirs then I, I, there's mostly just so pinged, once or... you've taken it yeah and on the time when it's yeah. randomly pinged you yeah you then have the opportunity to take late the reels which ah, is just okay. ones that you can take whenever you want during the day which okay. I don't usually bother with but yeah. but yeah so it amused me on the levels that first of all i'd never seen that happen before and then second of all i was like yeah but it's a late one it's not a, it's not a, not a real time one <laughs> come on be so real it's, it's not that real is it <laughs> yeah. But no, so it was funny. And I mean, a lot of their lyrics are about like technology and like how that plays into life. And just so it was it just kind of, I just quite enjoyed that as a thing in the gig. Some of the songs were very catchy and bouncy. Uh, I was I was quite impressed, actually. I don't know whether I listened to it a lot. It didn't kind of really grab me, but I did enjoy it. I'm glad, I'm glad it went. And 
I am in their top half percent of listeners on Spotify. <laughs> so did you get a special message? I did get a did special you? message. Yes. <laughs> Very nice. So yes, that was nice to get back to uh, to live music and, and good ones. We got one more this year. We are going to see uh, one of our five favorite live artists, The Howl and the Hum, who again are kind of changing things up. So Sam Griffiths, who's the principal singer songwriter, um, it sounds like he's parting ways with the rest of the band but keeping the name. Uh, so I don't know whether he's kind of going solo or whether he's getting collaborators in or a whole new band so watch the space they're playing three nights all sold out at the crescent uh the aforementioned crescent where holy moly and the crackers played in york um just before christmas isn't it 19th they're going aren't they yay i'm not working <laughs> i got that week off work i'm still working quite excited for that one though yeah he always the the howling the hum gigs are always amazing yeah so. he's got one of these voices it, it there's if I had to pick two people out from the last kind of 10, 20 years where I'd always try and go and see them live just to, for their voice just being absolutely amazing live would be uh, him, Sam Griffiths and Willie Mason. I think just the power of them when you're there is one of those that make your hair stand up on the back of your neck. Better than the recording. Your hair always stands up on the back of your neck because it's really short. Just saying. <laughs> Just put it out there. Okay, fair enough. Right, top threes, Kate. Top three duets. <laughs> I struggled a bit on this one at first. I was like thinking, uh, and one of the reasons why I think we struggled is because I got I got all these duets in my head that we've been looking at recently because we went to a party last Saturday night, which was a karaoke party, and, and we decided truly awful karaoke. We decided we were going to do a duet, and we absolutely. Murdered. murdered a ballad so we should have done murder ballads. yes we probably should have done uh we did consider one of them but we, uh, i didn't know it well enough so we did uh the ballad of tom jones by space featuring catatonia you just have a massive problem staying in tune on that song i can't decide i, I either i've either got to go all in and just do like sing it high i don't know why i want to sing it high but if I start singing it kind of like he's kind of on a level, I can't keep it there. I just want to go higher for some reason. I don't know. It must be the chorus. I don't know. Anyway, I feel like I let you down a bit on that one. You weren't happy at all, were you? I just, I mean, well, because you were first in every verse or whatever. And then I was pitching it off you, obviously, because you were already singing. <laughs> and then I'd get halfway through and I'd be like, God, this is in the wrong key again. It's all I my just, fault. It's I just abandoned fault. it at that point, so I just stopped singing through like halfway through each bit. I was just... Yeah. <laughs> See, it wasn't wasn't our best, was it? No, it was, it was awful. <laughs> but I mean, it is a good song. That that one would have been under consideration. I mean, a, a couple of others that I left off my top three difficultly, which we probably should have done a little time by uh, the Beautiful South. I think that's a great. You know what? We probably song. should have not done a duet. But you wanted to do because you know, were nervous well, about. Normally, you're a good, solid partner, but I don't know what's happened. You need to work on that. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, yeah, we had a whole night like the week before trying to. No, we had in a night room, of, front room. Of just singing. We weren't just doing it for that. No, no. Were we? Were you? No, like, no, 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 no. I but wasn't. I found a few more that I thought oh, I could do that solo actually. 
anyway, so a little time would have been kind of an honourable mention for me. Uh, the mess we're in, which is uh, PJ Harvey featuring Tom York. Uh, it's quite a recent one, that really good song. And another one that I like, quite recent, I think this is about three, four years old, from Travis featuring Susanna Hoff's uh, The Only Thing. Brilliant song. That was very close to getting into my top three, but didn't quite make it. So what are you going for, Kate? We'll start well, with you. What's your, so that was not your top three? No, no, these were just honourable mentions. <laughs> God, you're not allowed to do two top threes. Right, so my top three, um, I can't, they're, they're not in an order. Okay. I really like all of these songs. Okay, and so I they're really, all number one. I really rate both the version and the song. Like, I just can't. Yeah. Um. So just like you... David Ford and Annie Dress- Dressner. I think I've, I've put Dresser, but it's not, it's Dressner. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. That's off the album. We went to see them last it's year. On, is it off the one they did together, or is it on his album? I think it's on the one they did together, 48 Hours, with yeah. David Ford and Annie Dresner. I'm it's just, pretty sure. It's just a great song. Yeah, all um, right. we'll, we'll link to all these songs, by the way, on the show notes. We Should Be Together... From Lockdown and Strip Back by Louise Wiener and the Wedding Present. Really oh, like yeah, that. you played that one to me a lot. Yeah, it's a good good song, that, yeah. Uh, um, Mississippi Beat by Ian Prowse and Pauline Scanlon. Let's just dial it back one. <clears throat> the Wedding Present, <clears throat> we covered George Best on one of our earlier episodes. If you've not heard it, go back and find it. Yeah, and then I started listening to their real more recent stuff. Yeah. Um, and this was the one song that I've still is like on yeah. rotation for me. I think it's really good. Sorry, I kind of cut into your number one was, well, the last one you mentioned. Mississippi Beat. What a song that is. Pauline Scanlon, beautiful voice from Ireland, singing with my favourite artist, Ian Prowse, from his um, album Compañeros. I want to say that was, I can't remember what year that was. God, no, ages ago. <laughs> Maybe, do you think that's 10 years old now? Probably. Wow. A bit like Mark, this is an album of of cover songs, which is a bit ironic because Ian runs the Monday Night Club at the Cavern in Liverpool. And the big one rule that you have, it's an open mic kind of night thing, is um, no covers. (laughs) So I was a bit surprised when he came out with this covers album, but he picked songs that were not well-known by artists that, on the whole, you wouldn't know. Uh, This particular song was written by the uh, keyboard player from Amsterdam. I don't think, I think he he did about three or four years stint in Amsterdam, which was Ian Prowse's kind of band after Pele. He now just goes by Ian Prowse. But um, yeah, amazing song and a great performance and... The only, one of my biggest disappointments in life is that you didn't sing this with Ian when he came to Ian came and played a gig at our house. We had it for a, a party. So one day, you've said as well, you wish you'd have done it. Because you sing it really well. But at that point, I couldn't hit the highest note in the song. Yeah. I can now. Okay. So. Watch this space, people. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Go on then. Give... Now you've done your top three honourable mentions. 
not trying to build your part at all there, Bentley. No, I just Do can't. your actual top three. You know me, I'm terrible at making bloody decisions. And the same with this, I can't, I can't leave anything out. Right, my top three then was number three, um, Leanne Le Havis did a duet with Willie Mason called No Room for Doubt from 2012. Um, I don't really know that much about Leanne Le Havis, but great vocals and just a really, really nice song. Um, number two, I was going to leave this one out and then listen to it today and it, oh, it's just a brilliant pop song. Whatever you think about Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson, Say 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 from 1983. I think it was from Paul's Pipes of Peace uh, record. Just It just is a classic, classic, catchy, melodic pop song, Say Say Say. And the video is, is excellent. Uh, they play a couple of con artists, Mac and Jack. Uh, it's just pretty funny. I like it. Uh, and my number one is the Arctic Monkeys and Dizzy Rascal from 2007. And I'm also going to make this my single of the week because it's from the same year as uh, Stardom Road. And it is The Wonderful Temptation Greets You Like Your Naughty Friend, which was a B-side uh, to Brian Storm by the Arctic Monkeys. I think originally it was a, a Dizzy song just called Temptation and then did their kind of own version from it. If you want to see it, when they did the main pyramid stage at Glastonbury, I think 2008, they brought Dizzy on stage and, and did a version there, which is boss, I think would be a, a get down with it Dizzy phrase. Uh -huh. Okay. So that's my top three. <clears throat> what are you picking for your single of the week? Have you got one? Uh, I do. I have Famous by Police Car Collective. Ooh. Um, it's the one you were you were moaning because it's got loads of swearing in it. Kids <laughs> taking the piss out of me. Um, I it's just it's got like a load of stuff about um, doing stuff like just to get famous on okay. like Instagram or whatever. And it's just I just because obviously because I spend a lot of time on social media because I work in marketing and. And I, I kind of like, I really enjoy like the evolving response to how it shapes stuff right. and the way people have started using it in like music and film and, and TV and kind of trying to not understand the, the sort of experience of it, but try and articulate like how it can manipulate or how it can be used and how it feeds into like modern life. And, and this is kind of like about that. And it's, I just quite surprised as well. I like it. Very good. I like the explanation as well. Uh, when you were talking about that and the fact that it's, the song is uh, about getting famous, I don't, it just brought to mind, uh, remember that Just Jack song, mm. Stars in Their Eyes? Mm. Which is a similar, I mean, it's not similar, but it, it had a similar idea. Yeah. It, was, it was when all of the... Um, Reality, shows. It, reality show stuff was yeah. really, yeah. you know, and had started to really impinge on the way people thought about creating, yeah, and the way people thought about like performance and stuff, yeah. Um, and again, it was trying to kind of articulate how that was like affecting like music and yeah, like, television and film and things. I like that, and uh, I think that kind of resonates with a lot that's been happening this week, obviously. 
if you're on Spotify and you, you listen to a lot of stuff on Spotify, there's been the rap thing. And I think someone described it. I, I read a comment that someone described it as like an absolutely brilliant piece of marketing, which it is, you know, it's very clever and it gets people talking about it. And, you know, I, I guess there will be people out there that want to get in that 0.5% of artists. And as a result of that, we'll listen to more of it. And then, there's been a lot of artists that have kind of hit back at that and said, yeah, fair enough, but come on, pay us what we deserve. Otherwise, there isn't going to be any There's music two to sides to, to it, though, so... aren't there? There's like, yes, Spotify should probably pay the artist more money, but as a consumer of that art form, you have a choice to go and give your money to the artist by buying merch, by going to see them. Um which you should always try and do. Yeah, so, we would always advocate that. And, and to buy like a physical copy. Um, so I saw a TikTok the other day and some guy was saying, like, if you really like an artist, you should buy the vinyl. And he was like specific, buy the vinyl because you consume vinyl. And we've talked about this ages ago. We were talking about this. Because the way that you listen to vinyl is very different than the way that you listen to a CD. And so, I mean, I my stereo is like from the late 90s mid 90s uh, I'm, so, I'm very jealous but of it. even even my stereo has um a remote where i can skip on cds even with even with how old it is i mean i'm still gutted that i threw away the one that i had before that so you know but but obviously the vinyl you can't you can't skip you can't use a remote it's much more um physical visceral experience when you listen to music and that's the point that he was making i mean he was he was a millennial if not a gen z Um, he was saying that if you put vinyl on it's much more physical experience because you have to actually put it in you have to turn it over you you have to if you want to stop listening to it you have to physically stop it um and and so he was like like it's in our hands to change how we listen to music and how we interact with artists and spotify is like one part of the puzzle that doesn't have to be the only way that you 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 interact with music which I don't disagree with, but the problem is that there's kids are growing up with the fact that everything's accessible for like however much it is, twelve quid a month. You know what I mean? And it's just like when everyone's so bloody tight on money, like the, the vast majority of our society are, are you know, they're not wealthy. It's an easy option just to keep listening to Spotify, you know, so is right there is a choice but how do you get those younger people to buy the stuff you know i mean we try and take our kids to to gigs and we've tried to get them into live music and uh, you know it's worked to a certain extent people are buying vinyl and they are buying merch and they are going to gigs i mean i don't think we've been to any gigs that have been poorly attended recently I mean, no, Spectre wasn't sold haven't. out, but they have sold out some of their um, nights yeah. on this tour. Yeah. Um, yeah, and we, we always try and buy stuff, don't we? I mean, so, you know. It's always nice to get stuff signed and just have a 
let the artists know they were they were good so interesting stuff anyway please stick around we've got a couple of minutes left just to tell you about our next episode and some news on the podcast if you've made it this far it's another two yeah, minutes well of your done. time Jeez. yeah well done thank you If you have made it this far, we are sending in the trumpet, giving you a round of applause, thanking you from the bottom of our hearts, and you're probably one of our loyal listeners. When we put an episode out, there's always um, a number of people that listen within the first hour or two, which is pretty amazing, and we do appreciate that wholeheartedly. Um, Our next episode is going to be our final one. We have decided to call it quits on the podcast. Uh, a number of reasons, just other projects that we are going on. Our time is ever squeezed with family life. It's not quite as much fun as it was when we started doing it and we were in lockdown and there was uh, less social things to fit in. And uh, it's not grown as we'd hoped, unfortunately, the podcast itself. So, um, yeah, we've, we've decided to, to leave it at uh, 36 episodes, so it'll be 35 albums we covered. And the last one we're going to do, um, there was a bit of debate. We nearly did the, the album by The Howl and The Hum called Human Contact, which unfortunately for them was released when there was no human contact right at the start of the, uh, the pandemic. Um, but in the end, we've decided to go with the re-emergence of the Wanna Dies and their breakthrough album, Beat A Girl. Um, so I'm absolutely looking forward to that because that is one of my favourite albums of all time. And uh, Paul Wixton at the moment, who's the lead singer of the Wanna Dies, he's uh, front and centre of national TV in Sweden. He's uh, on a reality show over there where... They've got a load of recording artists, from what I can gather from my brilliant Swedish translations, where they're all kind of covering each other's songs. I don't know whether it's a competition or what, but it looks like he's having good fun on there. So uh, they've announced a, a load of um, tour dates for next year in Sweden. I've got my fingers crossed that they'll be coming to the UK. We missed out, unfortunately. They had two live dates, I think, in London and Manchester last year. It was this time last year, but you got called in for your op, and we. Yeah, I was too ill to go, basically. Well, basically, they cancelled the near ones, didn't they? Yeah. And so we had to go to Manchester, which we were fine with. But by the time it came round, I was too ill to go to a gig in Manchester. So, yeah. Yeah, so um, if you have made it this far, again, thank you so much. Uh, we do hope you'll join us at the last episode, even if you're not a, a huge one of those fans. I don't know much about their music. Give the album a listen before you listen to our final episode and um, hopefully you'll enjoy it. It's uh, the one that contains their song, the You and Me song, their most famous song, which was included in the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack. But we'll get into all that next time. Thanks um, again. <laughs> yes, it was featured in a, an ep- episode of uh, Coronation Street. Yeah, until then, thank you ever so much and we will um, look forward to your company on episode 36. Goodbye. Bye.